How can we wish each other a Merry Christmas in this politically correct culture without offending someone who wants to keep Christianity out of Christmas? Well, the truth is, we don't really care if our Merry Christmas offends anybody or not. We don't want to be offensive, but we're not going to stop saying Merry Christmas just because it might not be politically correct. But, I mean, think about this for a little bit. It's absurd to think that you can have Christmas without Christianity. I mean, it's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Well, even the word Christmas means Christ's Mass. Now, you don't have to be a Catholic to know that a Mass is a religious or worship service or season. And so Christmas itself is a Mass for Christ. It's a celebration of worship for Christ. Christ's Mass. You can't keep Christ out of Christmas. Well, somebody says, well, I know, we'll take Christ out and we'll put X there, right? Xmas. Merry Xmas. And sometimes when we're in a hurry, you know, we, we'll write Xmas to somebody. And, and a lot of times the merchants will do that because it's less expensive to have a sign that says one letter X instead of how many letters are in Christ? Six? Yeah. And so they'll try to save space or save money by saying Xmas. But did you know that in Greek, the first letters of the name Christ, the first Greek letter is Chi. We spell it in English, C-H-I. And it's Chi and then Rho, C-R, then Iota, then Sigma, and then Tau, I think it is. No, I forgot the, yeah, Sigma, then Tau, and then Omicron, and then Sigma again. Christos, that's the Greek word for Christ, Christos. And it starts with an X. So when you substitute the word Christ and put an X in there, you're still paying homage to Jesus, the Christ. You can't leave Christ out of Christmas. Okay, okay, we're not going to call it Christmas then, we'll call it the holidays. Happy holidays. Well, do, not, do I need to explain that a holiday is a holy day. I mean, it's right there in the word. Holy day. Happy holy days. A holiday is a day that's set aside to commemorate something, usually with a religious meaning. And so if we say happy holidays, we're still keeping Christ in Christmas because he's the holy one that we worship. And what about these trees we have at Christmas time? What do they have to do with Christianity? Well, they represent eternal life because they are evergreen trees. Unless you're Charlie Brown, then you don't have an evergreen tree, right? You have a Charlie Brown tree. Everybody do that. Yeah. Evergreen trees are symbols of everlasting life. In fact, a Christmas tree, or excuse me, an evergreen without lights is just an evergreen out of place. It's not a Christmas tree until you put lights on it, right? And so what about gifts and cards? Where did that come from? Does that have a Christian meaning? Gifts and cards. Well, 
They remind us of the magi or the wise men who brought gifts and the angels who gave a greeting card to the shepherds when they announced the birth of Jesus. And of course, the greatest gift of all, God loved us so much that he gave his only son. Gifts and cards, sure, they have a Christian origin. Okay, what about this guy named Santa? Isn't he just a secular creation? I mean, surely you can't get anything religious out of Santa, can you? Well, many of you know that there was a man in the 4th century in what is now Turkey, in the country of Turkey, who uh, was a bishop. His name was Bishop Nicholas. Bishop Nicholas enjoyed giving anonymous gifts to the needy. That was his calling. And in one of those instances, there was a poor nobleman, and I just have to throw in here that I wonder how the nobleman got poor. I thought noblemen, you know, had enough to become noble, but this nobleman must have made some wrong choices. He was a poor nobleman, and he had three daughters who needed marriage dowries, and he had no money for their dowries, so he had to keep supporting these three girls who were of marrying age, and Bishop Nicholas found out about it, and he arranged for three bags of gold to be thrown in the nobleman's window anonymously so he could have dowries for his daughters and get them married off. The nobleman found out that Bishop Nicholas was responsible for that, and the word got out, and it became pretty popular that any anonymous gift of charity to the needy was because of St. Nicholas and his behind-the-scenes actions. Well, you say, what does St. Nicholas have to do with Santa Claus? Have you ever heard of Santa Fe or Santa Barbara? Santa means saint or holy, sure, Santa. The word means saint, and we say St. Nick, short for Nicholas, or we say Santa Claus, Claus, Santa Claus, Bishop Nicholas. So even Santa is a religious figure, a Christian figure in our Christmas celebration. What is a saint anyway? One who has been made holy through the blood of Jesus the Christ. So all of these things have Christian origins. What about the lights of Christmas? Oh, that's what we're going to focus on today. Well, we have the star that guided the wise men and Jesus, the light of the world. Even the lights bring us back to the Christian origin of this holiday. You just can't have Christmas without Christ, without God's love for us and the gifts he has for us, without a deep sense of faith, hope, and love, and the joy of Christmas. Maybe that's why the sender of this greeting was so frustrated, because he tried to keep Christ out of Christmas. Let me read this for you. Please accept with no obligation, implied or implicit, my best wishes for a pleasant and stress-free, environmentally conscious, socially responsible, non-addictive, non-sectarian, gender-neutral, racially inclusive observance of the winter solstice celebration. Are you with me? And this celebration is practiced within the most enjoyable traditions of the religious credo of your choice or secular leanings of your choice with respect for the religious secular persuasion and or traditions of others 
or their choice not to practice religions or secular traditions at all. We're not done. <laughs> Furthermore, I wish you a fiscally successful, personally fulfilling, and medically uncomplicated recognition of the onset of the generally accepted calendar year 2023, but not without due respect for the calendars of choice of other cultures whose contributions to society have helped make America great. Not to imply that America is necessarily greater than any other country, nor the only America in the Western Hemisphere. Also, these wishes are declared without regard to the gender, race, creed, color, age, physical ability, religious faith, or sexual preference of the one to whom they are offered. Everybody got that? Is that how we're going to greet everybody this Christmas time? No, we're going to say at the top of our lungs. Are you ready? Wait, wait, wait. There it is. Let's say it. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Okay. But if you want to use that, that other greeting, you're allowed. I'll even give you a copy of it if you want it. Otherwise, it's going in the trash. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Actually, it's the first Sunday of the Christian year. That's odd, isn't it? Well, it's not the calendar year, it's the Christian calendar. The Christian year. The first Sunday of the Christian year is the first Sunday of Advent. Now, typically in the Church of Nazarene, we don't put a lot of emphasis on the Christian calendar. Some other denominations do. In, in our church, you'll hear about Lent, you'll hear about Pentecost, you'll hear about Advent, you may hear about Christ the King Sunday, you may hear about uh, how Passover and, and Easter work into all of that. These are things in the Christian calendar. It's time through Advent to begin our preparation for the coming of Christ. Four weeks from today, Christmas Day. Advent not only helps us get ready for the big day, it helps us keep our priorities right. And it helps us remember the true meaning of Christmas. It settles us so that we can keep things in perspective and be grateful for what God has done for us. And please don't ever forget that Advent is also a reminder that Jesus is coming again and we must prepare our hearts for his return. So Advent's important to us as we move into this season of Christmas. There are so many wonderful elements to the Christmas season. One of my favorites is light. In fact, I wish we could just take the time to let you yell out one by one your favorite element or your favorite part of Christmas. I, I, now, I'm sure we'd all say, well, Jesus, of course. That ought to be the foundation for all of our Christmas celebration. But there would be other things like the food, the family, the gifts, all those things, those elements of Christmas. But one of my favorites is light, all the lights of Christmas. When I was pastoring in Nashville, I did a, an Advent series on the lights of Christmas, and we moved through four different kinds of light that were in the Bible and how God used those lights to minister to people. And we're going to see some of that in the sermon today. But just think of all the lights of Christmas, all the ways that Christmas is lit up. I mean, there's candles. Some of them are real. Some of them are battery-powered. Some of them are plugged in. Some of them even have that little flippy thing that goes like this 
uh, and makes it look like it's a real flame in there, right? I saw one of those the other day. It was pretty cool. I said, is that real? And I went over, and it was this little flippy piece of something that was going like that. And it made, the, made it look like the candle was flickering. I love candles. I like the smell of candles, but that's not the light. We're talking about the light today. And, and tree lights and fireplaces and outdoor decorations all lit up. The warm lights of home. Car lights, headlights, and taillights. And at the end of Christmas, some of you grandparents will be like me. You'll be saying this little poem. I've seen the lights of Paris. I've seen the lights of Rome. But the finest lights I've ever seen were the taillights taking my grandchildren home. <laughs> yeah. So even car lights are part of Christmas. Store lights and signs. Some stores and businesses go to great lengths to light the place up. Traffic lights and street lights. The light on our cell phone that's supposed to flash sometimes when we take pictures, right? And doesn't always work, or sometimes it works when we don't want it to. Got your light? That's a nice thing to have because if you have your cell phone and your flashlight app, you'll never be completely in the dark. What about that red eye on the stove when you put it on high and it turns orange or red and lights up the kitchen? Not so you can have light, but so you can have the warmth to cook your food or the gas flame in that stove. What about family movies on the television? There are so many lights of Christmas that we enjoy, and those lights point us to the light of the world, Jesus. Take a moment to journey with me through the biblical narrative to see the significance of light in the story of God. The first recorded words of God are found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Now, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Trinity, God, the three in one, has always existed. So we don't know what conversations went on in the eternity back there before creation. There were maybe many conversations, right? I mean, we know there was a conversation after creation when God said to himself, let us make man in our own image. There were conversations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the first recorded words of God, not recorded on a tape recorder, written down, the first words written down that God ever spoke, simply, let there be light. Yes. And I love how the author of Genesis puts it. God said, let there be light. And there was light. <laughs> doesn't apologize for God. Doesn't try to explain it. Doesn't say, well, God had a lot of trouble to make that light. He just says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. It just happened that quickly and that efficiently because God, the creator, called light into being. He said, let there be light in the midst of chaos when the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the surface of the deep, God brought order out of chaos by speaking, let there be light. 
and there was light. God is vitally concerned with bringing light to our lives. He wants us to have a personal encounter with light. He wants us to walk in light. He knows that light is good, and he has designed his world so that light always conquers darkness. Now, I know that I and many other preachers have told you that before. You've heard that, but don't let that pass you by. I mean, don't miss that this Christmas. Light always conquers darkness. That's not just a saying. I mean, think about it. The darkest place you've ever been. Maybe you went to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, right? Maybe the tour guide turned out all the lights, utter darkness, not a single light. And you stood there for maybe three or four or five seconds in that darkness. And it seems like it envelops you. It, It consumes you. But then the guide has something rigged up so that he's either holding a light or he flips a switch and a light comes on and you suddenly realize darkness doesn't win. No. One little light and darkness is defeated. Darkness never wins over light. Light always wins over darkness. God designed his world that way. If there's just one little light, one ray of light, one flicker, one beam, one glow, one trace of light, then it is no longer completely dark. Light always wins, praise the Lord. Now, it's interesting that in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned against God, God placed cherubim and a flashing sword, a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the tree of life. You remember that? Now, some people say, well, Adam and Eve couldn't eat from the tree of life. That's the only tree in the garden they couldn't eat from. Wrong. The tree they couldn't eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fact is they could eat from the tree of life. That was God's plan. Eat all you want from the tree of life. Eat all you want, I'll grow more, right? And because they could eat from the tree of life, Adam and Eve apparently would have lived forever if they hadn't sinned. We we think that was God's design. I'll create man in my own image. I'm eternal, so man will be eternal as long as he eats from the tree of life and as long as he obeys me. But man sinned by eating from the one forbidden tree And then God had to set up the cherubim with the flaming sword, keeping Adam and Eve from consuming from the tree of life after that. So God even used his light, his piercing light, to divide sinful man from a holy God temporarily. Don't miss that. He didn't do that forever. He provided a way that we can get through that flaming sword and we can make our way to God. But God even used light in that situation. In Exodus chapter 3, I mean, we started with Genesis, just those two examples of let there be light and the flaming sword in, in the garden. But in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the third chapter, God speaks to Moses from a burning bush in the desert. That's light. A burning bush. Fire is light. The light of that fire represented the deliverance God planned for his people. 
And after Moses delivered God's people out of slavery in Egypt and they went into the wilderness, God provided his light at night to guide them and protect them and provide for them. Remember, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God offering his provision for his people. Now, in the temple that was first a tabernacle, remember, God gave Moses the instructions to build a tabernacle, a portable worship place, a portable temple, a portable church, whatever you want to call it, because they needed to worship in the wilderness, but they were on the move. And so they needed a, a, a tabernacle that could be set up for worship, and then they could take it down and haul it to the next location and set it up again. In the tabernacle, and eventually in the temple that Solomon built, there were lampstands. Often we call them candle stands, but their lamps were not candles like we have today, like paraffin or wax candles. They, they had little bowls in their candle stand. And if you think of the menorah that the Jews still use as a symbol today, the menorah had nine lamp cups on it. One in the middle represented God, but the other eight represented eight days that God miraculously provided oil so that those lamps would not go out. That happened in the second century before Christ. Have you ever heard of the Maccabees? Not the McAfee's, not the heating and air people. The Maccabees. That, that's in the Apocrypha, that 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of silence for God's people. God didn't speak during those 400 years. But in the second century before Jesus, during those 400 years, the Maccabees rose up in revolt and tried to take back Jerusalem for the Jews. And they took control of the temple, but they didn't have enough olive oil to keep the lamps burning in the temple. And the lamps represented the presence of God and his holiness. Those lights were significant to them. And God miraculously provided so that those lamps did not burn out for eight days. And that's why our Jewish friends still celebrate Hanukkah, the eight-day festival, because they're commemorating this miracle of God when he provided the olive oil that lit up the temple for those eight days. So this, this is all through the history of God's people. The prophet Isaiah said that the people walking in darkness, even dwelling in the shadow of death, would see a great light when the Messiah came. He said it like this, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. What a great promise. And we are recipients of that light. The folks in the Old Testament never saw Jesus. They never saw the fulfillment of that light coming into the world. But we're on the other side of that, folks, and our lives have been lit up by Jesus the light of the world. It was prophesied that God would reveal his light by sending his son Jesus to be the light of the world, to show us the way out of sin and to defeat the darkness. There's probably no other passage in the Bible that points us to the light like this one in the first chapter of John. I'm going to read it for you as you watch. It's several verses here from John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, light always wins. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We call him John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself, John, was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. I love this. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Praise the Lord. We'll stop the reading right there. At Jesus' birth, there were phenomenal lights. I mean, think about it. When the angels announced the news to the shepherd, it says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory, the light of those angels, the light of God, the glory of God shone around them. That's light, folks. And it's the same good news that we've received, that Jesus has come into the world as the light. The same light that shined on those shepherds that night shines on us today. And the other phenomenal light, of course, was the unusual light that the wise men followed in the night sky that led them to the place where the Holy Family was staying. We are followers of the light that points the way to a Savior. There's one other little story in this narrative that I want to throw in here because I love the story and sometimes it's forgotten, it's more obscure. You remember on the eighth day after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem, to the temple. This was the presentation of the new son of Mary and Joseph, eight days after he was born. And there was a man who basically lived all day, every day, at the temple. His name was Simeon. We're not sure where he went at night, but every day from early till late, he was at the temple. He was an elderly man. We don't know how old, but some Bible scholars think he may have been in his 80s. And he would go every day to the temple, and he really believed and he had prayed, God, please don't let me die until I see the redemption of my people, Israel. In other words, I want to be alive when the Messiah comes. Now, I had a man in my church in Nashville. When I moved there in 1990, he was already 90 years old. So, you know, like today he'd be, what, 122? No, 132, if he was still living. No, 122. Okay, 90 years old, trying to do my math. Brother Stewart really believed that God was going to let him live so that he would be alive when the second coming of Christ happened. That guy could quote scripture. He would get up and testify sometimes and just quote verse after verse of scripture. And it was moving. It really was. And he had such a wonderful testimony. And, and he 
really had faith that he was going to live until the second coming of Christ. Of course, that didn't happen because he's dead now and Jesus hasn't returned. But this man, Simeon, he was waiting for the first advent of the Messiah. We're waiting for the second advent of the Messiah, the second coming of Christ. But Simeon was there every day. Lord, please, please let me live until I see the Messiah with my own eyes. And so he's there in the temple one day. And you think about that day after day after day. You know how routine things get? How used to things you get? How nothing out of the ordinary happens? But as this couple walks past with a brand new baby, an eight-day-old baby, he stops them and says, may I hold your child? I don't know. Times must have been a whole lot different back then. We would say, no, you can't hold my child. Who do you think you are? But there was something in Simeon that they saw, and they let him hold baby Jesus. And here's what he prayed as he held that baby. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I'm ready. I've seen him. I can die now and everything is fulfilled. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Isn't that a great story? Just kind of out of nowhere, this man takes the baby and prays this prayer and says, this is not an ordinary baby. This is the Messiah. This is the light that God has sent into our world. He will change everything. You see, Jesus came into this world at the ordained time when darkness seemed to be winning the battle and when sin seemed to be in control. Does that sound familiar for the day in which we live? Darkness seems to be winning the battle and sin seems to be in control. But the light that God sent, Jesus, was the express image of the Father. He loved and taught and worked miracles. He changed lives. He gave his life so that our sins could be forgiven. No wonder Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. When Jesus, the light of the world, comes into our lives, he brings the light to us. And you know some of the things that light does, don't you? Light provides warmth. Light warms our lives. Many times you say, I'd like to get closer to the fire. I'd like to be under a sun lamp. I'd like to go out in the sunshine and get some warmth from God's Light. Light warms our lives. It provides warmth. Light shows us the way. That's another element that light provides. It shows us the way. Uh, some of you don't know much about our office suite over here, but we have the reception area and we have Pastor Mark's office and Pastor Jason from Riverside, his office is there. Kim Janes is in the receptionist desk here, and Cheryl is in the office you can see to the left. But then there's a little cubby hole, hallway, 
And that used to be the senior pastor's office. But at some point, 10 or 12 years ago, they divided that larger office into two smaller offices. One is two-thirds, and the other is one-third. The youth pastor got the two-thirds office. The associate pastor got the one-third office. That's because I never am here, so I don't really need an office. But anyway, I do have a little office. It's on the front of the church, uh, and I can see right out onto the, the driveway there where the handicapped parking spots are. And Pastor John, our new youth pastor, has moved into the youth pastor's office, and he's trying to get it set up the way he likes it. And there was a piece of furniture in there that he didn't want. He didn't want that old piece of furniture. And it was like a coffee table. It's too, too small to be a coffee table, too big to be an end table. So probably this wide square, completely square. He puts it out in this little hallway between my office and his office. And that's, that's okay, because uh, the office is wide enough to have that table sitting there. But the other night I was here by myself, the other night I was here by myself, I was the only one here, I was here by myself, and, and there was no one else here. And the lights were off. And when I was finished in my office, I flipped the light switch off and I walked down that little hall. And of course, boom, I ran right in to the, the table that John doesn't want in his office. Now, I didn't say a bad word, but a bad word formed in my head right there. It didn't come out. I think it was something like shucks. Okay. And and I mean, it, it cracked my knee pretty good. And I said, you, you knew that table was there. Why, why didn't I see it? Because it was dark. I mean, there was no light back in that hall. And I guess I should have left my light on, walked around that table to the light switch, which is at the end of the little hall, not by my office at the other end, flipped it on, then walked back around the table, turned my light off, then walked back around the table and turned that one off and left the office. That would have been the smart thing to do. But no, I turned the lights off and walked down that hallway only to encounter the dreaded end table that was in the way. Why didn't I see it? Because it was dark. We need light to guide our way. If I would have left one light on out, out in the office or out in the foyer to shine through the office windows, I probably would have remembered or seen it, but I didn't. I needed light to show me the way. Another thing light does, it causes things to grow. Yeah. You remember when they first came out with the light bulb that was a grow lamp? That was kind of cool. You're not as old as me, are you? Yeah, they said you can, you can hang this light over your plants when it can't get sunlight and so on. And of course, you have to talk to your plants too. Come on, honey, you can grow. You're the best plant around. I, I know I'm going to feed you and I'm going to take care of you, but I really need you to grow. You're supposed to talk to your plants and put the grow light over them. But light really does. We, we wouldn't have any plants if it weren't for the light that God put in the sky. Light causes things, including us, to grow. And light also illuminates or enlightens our minds. Sometimes we say, oh, the lights went on. I know what you're talking about. Enlighten me, please. 
we need the light. Shed some light on that subject so I'll understand what you're talking about. Light illuminates our minds. Another thing light does, it brightens our attitudes. Really, it does. You know, if you've heard of the, the syndrome called SAD, haven't you? Seasonal Affective Disorder. It's, it's one of the reasons it can even be diagnosed. It's one of the reasons people feel sad during the winter because it's a seasonal effect on you. Seasonal affect disorder. Uh, light, when there's more sunlight, it brightens our attitudes. I remember the 25 years I pastored in Nashville, from time to time I'd get a phone call at night. Maybe it would be the early evening, but it was dark. Sometimes it was late in the evening. I mean, even close to midnight. I'd get a call from someone who was really struggling. They'd say, Pastor, I really need to talk. And I would talk to them on the phone, try to encourage them, pray with them over the phone. Sometimes they would say, well, could I come and see you tomorrow? And I'd say, okay, let's meet at the church office at 10 o'clock and and we'll talk things out, and we'll see where we need to go from here. I'll do anything I can to encourage you. And many times, not every time, but many times, that person would not show up at 10 o'clock the next morning. You know why? Because things are always darker at night. That's not just a play on words. Things are always darker at night. And what that person found in some cases was once they slept, once they got up the next morning, the sun came up, things looked brighter, things looked better, the light brightened their attitude, and they forgot all about needing to talk to good old Pastor Mike about their troubles because they had a different perspective on things. So light even brightens our attitudes, and light affects all those around us. Light affects everything around it. When the light comes, sometimes it causes reflection. Sometimes it'll reflect right into our eyes. Sometimes it bothers other people who don't want the light. Some people like to sleep in complete darkness. Some people like a night light. Some people think the, the uh, lit up digits on their alarm clock are too bright. Some people want more light. But light affects everything around it, and it affects those around it as well. But we need the light. Light provides all those things for us. Light is so important in our Christian walk and in our celebration of Christmas. But before we end this discussion of the light, we have to look at one more concept. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. I thought you just told us you were the light. Aren't you the one that said, I am the light of the world? So you're giving that up? You're throwing that on us? Well, in essence, he is. Jesus went back to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, praying for us. He needs us to be the light in the world now. Jesus is not here. His Holy Spirit is, thank the Lord. But Jesus isn't here. We are the light of the world. And he says to us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light. I am the light. We are the light of the world. We have an assignment, folks. 
Jesus, the light of the world, sitting at the right hand of God, has called us to be lights in this dark world, sharing his love, his life, his light with everyone we can. And don't ever forget this verse that's near the end of the Bible. We've gone from Genesis to 1 John now. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This Christmas, let us commit ourselves to be lights that shine in darkness, to lift up Jesus so that all we encounter can also encounter the light of the world. He is our hope. He is our light. Bow your heads with me, please. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. Like sunshine at noonday, his glory shone in. The light of the world is Jesus. If you know it, sing it. Come to the light, tis shining for thee. Fifthly, the light has dawned upon thee. Once I was blind, but now I can see. The light of the world is Jesus. I'd like to ask our communion servers to come to the front, please, and prepare things for our observance of this sacrament. We're blessed today to be invited to the table of the Lord. It's not the table of the church, and it's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. Come, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long. Come, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come to this table because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. And Lord, we offer up to you these gifts of communion, the unfermented wine and the unleavened bread, these symbols of your passion for us. Your body broken, your blood spilled out so that our sins could be forgiven. We don't ever want to take that for granted. We don't ever want this to become routine. It's incumbent upon us to put the meaning in this observance as we receive these gifts today. And so I pray that on this first Sunday of Advent, we will celebrate our salvation and that we will receive the light of the world into our lives so that then we can be lights in this dark world taking your good news everywhere we go. Bless your people as we celebrate your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our tables are open. If you have the prepackaged communion set, just hold on to that for a moment and we'll receive it together.